Grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God stands forever. The word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. We're here this morning to study in the word of God. We are in Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. And I expect that we will wrap up chapter 5 this morning. We are looking at the section verses 16 through 26 and have been for some time. This is a critically important part of the text. And uh, we're going to do a review this morning, a rapid review to catch us back up to where we've been and where we are going to finish up today. Before we do any of that, we need to make sure that we are, in fact, prepared for the study of the Word of God. This will be a moment of silent prayer to allow us to confess sins if needed, also to humble ourselves and yield to the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. Shall we pray? Most gracious and merciful and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity you've presented before us this morning. One more opportunity to meet here at the church, to have this opportunity for fellowship one with another. The opportunity we have to consider the truth of your word as a group together here in the sanctuary Father, you have provided everything necessary for us to be able to do that. I thank you for those who made the volitional choice to be here this morning. I thank you for those who wanted to be here this morning but couldn't be for various reasons. Father, we ask that you would bless each and every one of us as we listen to the message this morning to help us to focus our attention on what it is that you're trying to teach us through your word that each and every one of us will be built up in our faith, draw closer to you, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray all of these things in his most precious and beautiful name. Amen. All right, we have been on, at work on this section for some time. Uh, one more time, I'm going to go back through and we're going to look at the translation. We're going to actually go back to this morning because there are some people who have not been <clears throat> part of all of this from the beginning. We're going to go ahead and go through the whole uh, set of principles quickly, rapid review, catch up to where we are now, and then move on from there. The translation uh, that, we, that we have is, Now I say walk by, this is starting in verse 16 of chapter 5, Now I say walk by means of the Spirit, and you will definitely not carry out the lust of the flesh. For the flesh has desires contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit contrary to the flesh, for these are enemies of one another, with the result that you may not do the things that you want to do. But since you are being led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the products of the flesh are evident, which are sexual immorality, moral impurity, debauchery, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, discord, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, heresies, envying, drunken sprees, excessive partying, and things like these, of which I tell you in advance, just as I have previously warned you that those who consistently engage in such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, 
kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. There is no law that prohibits such things. Now, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and lusts. Since we are spiritually alive by means of the Spirit, let us also behave in accordance with the Spirit. Let us not become arrogant, provoking one another, envying one another. Those, that is the translation that we have of verses 16 through 26. And now we're going to take a quick look at the principles uh, regarding these verses. Now, a couple of things I want to point out before we do that, very important. Let me back up here. It says, uh, it says here in verse 21, uh, I tell you in advance, just as I have previously warned you, that those who consistently engage in such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This verse is talking about unbelievers here. It's talking about people who that's, that, this is their course of life, is all of the things listed in the products of the flesh. And so this is mentioning this in terms of those who are unbelievers. And part of the point that Paul is making there by bringing that up is, this is how unbelievers act. You're believers. Why are you acting like that? Why would you do these things? But you need to be aware as believers that this is what you can do. We still have uh, the sin nature in the flesh. We can still do all of those things. But that's what unbelievers do. So let's not do that. Let's do what we should be doing as born-again believers, those who are a new creation in Christ. Let's do the things that are the fruit of the Spirit. And the other thing I want to point out one more time, I've pointed it out over and over again, is in the, the passage about the flesh, the products of the flesh, it's plural which means that there's a list there of the products of the flesh. But when you're, in, when you're in sin, when you're carnal, you may only do one or two of those things. It's not that you're necessarily going to do all of those things. But this is what the flesh produces. And so we can be engaged in any one or multiple ones of those things. When we get to the fruit of the Spirit, it is singular. And so as we walk by means of the Spirit, as we are bearing forth the fruit of the Spirit, we will bear forth all of those things. In that list, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, so on. We have a list given to us. Well, now quickly, again, this is all material that we've covered before. Quickly, we're going to review the principles we have for these verses, verses 16 through 26. First of all, we're talking about the flesh versus the spirit. One of the things you need to understand, and unfortunately, this is mistaught in some churches you need to understand that the very moment you believed in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you received the indwelling Holy Spirit. It's not something that comes post-salvation. It happened the moment that you trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior. Uh, this grace blessing is for believers in the current dispensation of the church, but it was not given to the Old Testament saints. David was concerned that he might lose the Spirit. You don't need to be concerned about that. You are not going to have the Spirit taken away from you. It's a permanent Indwelling, And we saw also in 1 Samuel that Saul had it taken away from him. Here we see also at the moment of salvation, we were also made spiritually alive. That's the quickening. That's the born again. That's the spiritually alive at the moment of our salvation by means of the Spirit. Given that, it follows that we should then live our lives by means of the Spirit. If that's how we were born again, by means of the Spirit, doesn't it make sense that we should also live our lives by means of the Spirit? It does to me. When we live our lives by means of the Spirit, we will absolutely not carry out the lusts of the flesh. I'm just quoting in another way, if you will, paraphrasing uh, Galatians 5.16. And that's a promise of God in Galatians 5.16. 
You walk by means of the Spirit, you will not. Definitely will not. It's, an, it's a very strong negative there. You definitely will not carry out the lust of the flesh. So God has given us a provision to walk by means of the Spirit so that we can avoid carrying out the lust of the flesh. So we, then we started looking at a list of things that God has made provision for us so that we can maintain fellowship with him, so that we can continue to walk as we are supposed to walk. Well, confession of sin, I listed that first. Actually, that is for when you fail, right? When you fall into sin, you have this wonderful, wonderful provision in 1 John 1, 9. Also, don't, don't forget, it's mentioned elsewhere in Scripture. Everybody always goes to 1 John 1, 9, but Psalm 32, Psalm 51, for that matter, talks about it. We have a provision from God that when we stumble into sin, we can confess our sins and be restored to fellowship. Remember this, I've, I've taught this multiple times. There are eternal consequences of sin. There are temporal consequences of sin. Don't confuse the two. The moment you place your faith in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you are no longer under the condemnation of the eternal consequences of sin. In other words, you have been reconciled to God. You no longer have to be concerned about going to the lake of fire. You are saved forever. Once saved, always saved. However, when you sin as a born-again believer, there's a temporal consequence a break of fellowship with God, we fall into the ugliness and the, as Paul would say it, the utter sinfulness of sin. And as a result, we have a break in fellowship. So God gave us the blessing of the ability to confess. We don't have to go to a priest to do it. We can confess directly to God because guess what? We're all priests, priestesses if you prefer that for the ladies. But we have the ability to go directly to God and confess our sin. So that's that one's listed first, but really that's, that's if you fail, then you need that to be restored. But look at the rest of these. Putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, and I'm going to skip down to the bottom, putting on the new self, right? The new self, which has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. We have the Lord Jesus Christ we can put on. We can put on the new self. We can lay aside the old self. These are all things that we can do volitionally. We have the renewing of the mind, which God does for us, right? The renewing of the mind, which, by the way, is a day-by-day process. Day-by-day process. It's not something you do on Sunday morning and then the rest of the week you just go along floating through the air. No, it was supposed to be a daily process of the renewing of the mind. Then we have receiving the word implanted in James. talks about that. By the way, our scripture of the week this week uh, refers to that as well. Psalm 119.11. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. And the psalmist there in Psalm 119 is talking about how the Word of God itself within our souls helps protect us from falling into sin. James talked about that too in James 121. Laying aside sin and encumbrances, which is an interesting one because in Hebrews 12.1 it talks about laying aside sin and encumbrances, both. So there are... Sinful activities that certainly we want to avoid. Amen to that, right? All of us can agree there. But there's also encumbrances. There are things that we can do in our own walk that don't fall into the category of sin. You won't find it in the Ten Commandments. You won't find it listed in the categories of sin that are listed in the New Testament for the church age believer and so on. But it's an encumbrance. It is a limitation, an encumbrance to your spiritual walk. And the author of Hebrews there says you're supposed to lay those things aside as well. 
fixing our eyes on Jesus. It comes in the next couple of verses there, verses 2 and 3 of Hebrews 12, the idea of fixing our eyes on Jesus. I believe that that in in conjunction with walking by means of the Spirit, if you put those two verses together, you have a great formula for success in the Christian life. Keep your eyes on our Savior, Jesus Christ. Humble yourself and yield and walk by means of the Holy Spirit. And both of those, by the way, are a function of faith. Because don't we walk by faith? We do. We walk by faith. So we have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ and we fix our eyes on Him. We have faith in the indwelling Holy Spirit, that he can help us to walk the way we need to. And so we walk by means of the Spirit, as it says in the next point. And then putting spiritual qualities into use. That's an interesting one a lot of people skip over there in Second Peter chapter 1. But that passage says that as you put the spiritual qualities that God is manifesting in you, right? all of those qualities listed in that passage are the ones that God is manifesting in you. As you put them into use, now that means they are... They are applied to your daily lives, brotherly love, agape love, all the things, patience, all the things that are listed in that passage, perseverance, all the things that that God is manifesting in you. As you put them into use, it says, if you do this, you will definitely not stumble into sin. Let's turn there real quick just so I can show you what I'm talking about. We have this incredible list of things, applying diligence, the excellence of character, knowledge, self-control, Patient endurance, reverent conduct, godliness is what that is. Brotherly kindness, sacrificial love. And then it goes on to say, these qualities truly existing and abounding you cause you to be neither idle nor unproductive, which, by the way, when I taught Second Peter, I spent some time on that, because you can be either one of those. As a believer, you can be idle, but even if you're not idle, you can be busy and yet unproductive. You don't want to be either one of those. Uh, And then it goes on from there, but what it says in verse 10, very important, for this reason, brethren, apply an even more diligent effort to make your calling and choosing have an abiding effect because while you are putting these qualities into use, you will definitely never stumble into sin. Now, here's what you need to realize. Those things, those qualities, what are we talking about? We're talking about it's being born forth from the Spirit. It's fruit of the Spirit kind of qualities we're talking about that come from God. And so as we're walking by means of the Spirit, bearing forth the fruit of the Spirit, we will not stumble into sin. A lot of people skip that passage. But these are all provisions that God has given us so that we can actually walk as we are supposed to walk. So it's not as though God didn't give us the tools we need. He gave us the tools we need in abundance to be able to walk as we should walk. We need to understand that something not good, the sin nature, dwells within our flesh, Romans 7, 18. When we live according to the flesh, we cannot please God in anything we do. Of course, unbelievers, that's how they function. But as believers, we can be guilty of the same thing. We can function according to the flesh, and we're not pleasing to God when we do that. Therefore, it's critical to abstain from the fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. And we looked at that in 1 Peter 2, 11. We also took some time to look at the slideshow that I have that, that highlights the soul. And all the activities that take place there. And, and what's interesting about that is how, how the Holy Spirit's involved in the activities that take place. And how faith, if you remember, there's a whole, there's a whole process there by, whereby faith is important in several aspects of it. Not only the faith that we unite with the hearing of the word, right? The faith that we unite with the hearing of the word. The faith that it takes to make application and so on and so forth. So faith is involved throughout the whole process. And we can either apply faith in the right direction 
Or we can apply faith in the wrong direction. We can put our faith in the worldly things. We can hear somebody talking about things and uh, it'll be worldly in nature. And we can absolutely apply faith to that. We can believe what they're saying. And we can get uh, further away from the truth of the word of God by placing our faith in the worldly nonsense. Our spiritual life, again, this is a rapid review because we've covered all this. Our spiritual life is a continual battle between the flesh and the spirit, and as a result, we may, not do, we may, we may do things that we do not want to do. That's what Romans 7 is all about. And I would, I would make a clear argument that when Paul wrote Romans, he was a pretty mature believer, wouldn't you say? And yet he had the struggle between the flesh and the spirit. And, of course, that's what he's writing about here in Galatians as well. Very important concept that I highlighted, temptations may come our way, but the temptation itself is not a sin. It's when we give in. And uh, I don't know, I've said this before, but I'll remind you, when I ta- I've taught James multiple times, I believe the language there in James is that we have a conception. We conceive sin, right? Well, what happens is you have the temptation, which in and of itself is not a sin. If temptation were a sin, Jesus would have been guilty of sin because Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. You know, it's all, I always am interested in that passage because people look at that and they think the temptations are what's listed there. But no, what's listed there is what happened at the end of the 40 days. We don't even know what happened for 40 days, what it was that Satan was doing for 40 days tempting Jesus. But if temptation were a sin, then Jesus was a sinner. But it's not. It's when it conceives, and well, how does that work? I believe the two parties that come together, when you need two parties for conception, the two parties that come together are the temptation and volition. When you volitionally give in to the temptation, it conceives sin, right? You give in to it and you commit the sin itself. So temptation is not a sin. But when we give in to it, then we, it, it brings forth sin. God will not, not allow us to be tempted but beyond what we're able to bear. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, a wonderful verse to keep in mind. If you feel like a temptation's come your way that's beyond what you're able to bear, remember that God won't allow that to happen. It means, he, it means when that temptation presents itself that he's given you everything you need to succeed in the situation you're in with that temptation that's presented before you. All you have to do is avail yourself of what he's given you. If you feel like you can't resist the temptation, that means you're probably trying to do it in the energy of the flesh, not in the strength of God. Because he's given you the ability... To resist it. Relying upon the Holy Spirit and the Word of God implanted in our souls is critical during times of temptation in order to, uh, I should say, to avoid sin. That's a typo. But Luke 4, that's the record of Jesus in the wilderness. What did he do? Everybody, everybody highlights this. What did he do when he answered the devil? He answered him with Scripture. That's what we want to do as well. And by the way, the Holy Spirit helps us to recall those things, doesn't he? If you haven't had that happen in your life, then I encourage you to rely more upon the Holy Spirit because I can't even count the number of times that I've been in a situation and all of a sudden, boom, a verse comes to mind. And that's the Holy Spirit that brings that verse to mind, the ability to apply it directly to the situation. So the Holy Spirit helps us to remember the word which is implanted. Relying upon the leading of the Spirit is critical in ascertaining the specific details of the will of God for our lives. This is so important to understand Scriptures give, give us the general marching orders. We have a whole lot in Scriptures as to what it is we're supposed to do in the will of God. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything gives thanks, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. So we have all kinds of passages like that that tell us 
the general marching orders for the will of God in our lives. And that's going to cover 95, 96, 97% of everything in your life. It comes, when it comes down to specific situations where you're trying to figure out, well, should I take this job or stay where I am or what am I supposed to do here? And you're trying to ascertain the will of God. Then ask. James chapter 1 says, if you're seeking wisdom, ask and he will give it to you without reproach. So ask God for the wisdom to know what to do there and allow yourself to be led by the Spirit. And I will say this. A lot of people come to me as pastor and say, well, what do you think I should do? And, of course, I can't necessarily give them the answer. But one thing I can tell them, and I say this all the time, ask yourself the question. If you do A, is it going to glorify God? Because if it's not, then I promise you that's not his will. He doesn't want you to go in a direction that's not going to glorify him. So that's, a, that's one measure, a measuring stick you can use when you're looking at decisions like that is, do I believe this is going to glorify God if I do this? But specific details, you know, those kinds of things, God will give us the answers. And again, don't, don't, I, I talk about this all the time. Don't apply the, the microwave timetable to it. God's going to give us the answer in his timing, not as fast as we necessarily want it to be. The leading comes from the spirit within our souls, gives us the opportunity to volitionally respond and then put them into action. You can resist the leading of the spirit. You can, the spirit, Holy Spirit can be leading you. And you know what you can do? You can say, no, I'm not going to do that. We have volition. That's what gets us in so much trouble, by the way. But it's also a beautiful thing that God has blessed us with. The leading of the spirit will never contradict the word of God. Critically important to understand if you believe you're being led to do X and X contradicts with the things that are in the word of God, then you're being led by a spirit, all right. But it's not the Holy Spirit. When we're walking in accordance with the spirit, the law is fulfilled in us. Now, why is this important? This is particularly important in the context of the Galatians passage because remember what he's addressing. This, of course, comes later when Paul writes this in Romans. But the concept is important because what Paul was battling in the book of Galatians is these Judaizers that were influencing the Galatian churches and bringing them to convince them to try to participate in certain activities of the law, either uh, celebrating the calendar and festivals and things of that nature or circumcision or whatever it might have been. And this idea that the law is fulfilled in us when we walk in accordance with the Spirit is an important concept because the idea is we're no longer trying to follow all the details. And I didn't point it out when we read the translation, but one of the things Paul uh, makes a point of is look this we're not when we when we talk about the fruit of the spirit we're not talking about a legalistic observance here we're not talking about the love the joy the peace all of these things coming about as a result of a legalistic observance this is what god is bringing forth this is what god is manifesting in us god the holy spirit and it's not like we're doing this legalistically which of course is what they were imposing upon the galatian believers these judaizers uh, and then we talked about what, what is produced. We're not going to go back through all these verses. Whoops, sorry, not too many. Sin nature in the flesh produces sexual immorality, moral impurity, debauchery, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, discord, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions. Notice how many of those have to do with enmity, dissension, disputes, discord. Uh, that's, I, think we had, I think we had some of that going on in the Galatian churches <laughs> Uh, because of the Judaizers, uh, heresies, envying, drunken sprees, excessive partying. Of course, we don't know for sure that all of this was necessarily going on, but this is something the sin nature produces. 
And then he goes on to say, and things like these. And then we got to the next section where the indwelling of the Holy Spirit produces love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Now, I know we got to kindness. I don't remember if we actually covered kindness last time, but we'll take a look at it anyway. But we looked through love and we looked through joy. Of course, I, I use the terminology in such a way that when I talk about, this is agape love, first of all, when I talk about joy, Joy is a happiness that you can experience that is not contingent upon circumstances and conditions. Happiness is the word that I use for that which is conditional, that which depends upon our circumstances. So certainly we can have happiness in our lives based on... I can tell you right now, I was extremely happy when I finished my final exam at Rice University. I was was very happy (laughs) that I was done with that final exam. The last one. Uh, but joy is not dependent upon circumstances. Peace, we looked at. Of course, peace is interesting because we can have peace is used in the context of the peace we can have with God, the peace that we can have with others. But there's also the Philippians 4, 6, and 7 peace concept, which is the inner peace, which surpasses understanding. Patience, which that's always a subject. Whenever you teach on patience, it's like, you know, wow, okay. God, teach me patience. All right, be careful when you pray that prayer because he will. Uh, kindness, uh, 2 Corinthians 6, 4 through 10. We'll go ahead and look at this because I'm not sure if we actually touched on this. But in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God in much endurance and in, flic- in afflictions and hardships and distresses, in beatings and imprisonments and tumults and labors and sleeplessness and hunger and purity and knowledge and patience in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true, as unknown yet well-known, as dying yet behold we live, as punished yet not put to death, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing all things. That's actually, you know, I know it's way too long to ask of, of y'all, but that would be an incredible passage to memorize, <laughs> right? We do it in our scripture memory. That would be an incredible one to memorize. But notice kindness was in the midst of that list. Titus 3, 4 through 7. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, now notice we're talking about the kindness of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So here we're talking about the kindness of our God and Savior, right? So kindness was manifest in him, and the Holy Spirit manifests kindness in us also. Goodness, Romans fifteen fourteen, And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also have become convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, having been filled with all knowledge and able also to admonish one another. Uh, so that's an important concept there at the end, the ability to admonish one another. In other words, it's not just the pastor that does the admonishing. We're supposed to admonish one another as part of a body of believers. But notice what it says, that you're full of goodness, having been filled with all knowledge and able also to admonish one another. So the goodness that comes again from God, uh, because you notice that is 
it, you are full of goodness, but then we have the passive concept, having been filled with all knowledge. That's what God has done for us, and he creates within us goodness. We are not good on our own. Second Thessalonians 1, at least not divine good. Second Thessalonians 1, 11 and 12, to this end also we pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness. And the work of faith with power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So notice, fulfill every desire for goodness. Now that's interesting, because what that now says is goodness is something that the Spirit manifests in us. We saw that in Galatians 5, in the, in the fruit of the Spirit passage, but... We're supposed to have a desire for it. Notice what it says there. Fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power. So in other words, as born-again believers, what that's telling you is you're supposed to have a desire for this, a desire for goodness. If that's not something that you find that you have, then that's something you need to pray about and think about is why don't I desire goodness? And we look at this and it's the idea, again, of a, Really, in a way, you can look at it in the same thing as what Peter talked about when he said we should be holy because he is holy. We should desire to walk in a matter in a manner that's righteous, not according to our own standard of righteousness, but according to God's standard of righteousness. So we should have a desire for that. Faithfulness. Now, I can say this. I mean, the average the average individual uh, is not very faithful. God is faithful, but we are not. God manifests faithfulness in us. Matthew 2323 <clears throat> Woe to you I always like these woe passages right woe to you you don't want you don't ever want to be the object of a woe I I say that all the time but if if the scripture says woe to you it is talking about you that's not good uh, woe to you scribes and pharisees hypocrites and like I can say if you really read this the right way you got to put that kind of emphasis on it cuz that's what he was saying woe to you scribes and pharisees hypocrites for you tie the mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness, but these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. So Jesus says faithfulness is pretty important there. 1 Corinthians 4:17. For this reason I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. Now this is not his actual child in terms of physical child, it's his spiritual child timothy is his spiritual child his beloved and faithful child in the lord and he will remind you of my ways which are in christ just as i teach everywhere in every church so what what's important about this is part of the reason paul emphasizes this is he was sending timothy right timothy who he considered to be faithful so paul highlights the faithfulness of timothy here uh, and it's important in the context. He feels comfortable sending Timothy because he knows Timothy is going to be faithful. But again, that faithfulness comes from God. First Timothy 3.11, women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Again, every time you see this presented in such a way, it's presented in a positive light, faithful in all things. Pretty important. Faithfulness is pretty important in the Christian Christian life, but again, we don't do that on our own. It's a fruit of the Spirit. Gentleness. Again, I always have to highlight this. 
Uh, I don't see anything in my Bible when it says gentleness where it has a little parentheses and says for the ladies. I don't see that, right? It's not in there. So the point is gentleness is actually a quality of a real man. A real man uh, in the Lord is gentle. That doesn't mean you're not tough. You can be tough and gentle at the same time. I hope you understand that, right? You can be strong and you can be tough, but you need to be gentle as well. Gentleness, 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, be kind to all, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are, are in opposition. Very important. With gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. In other words, if you're correcting somebody who sees something differently, what's the point? To prove that you're so smart? No. The point of, in, of bringing correction to someone is that you might be able to maybe spark something in them that would lead to a repentance where they would come to the knowledge of the truth because ultimately don't you want them to believe what the Bible says? Verse 26, And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil having been held captive by him to do his will. So we need to understand that correction. And by the way, when you look at how God does it, when God corrects us, which by the way, discipline is corrective in nature, he does it gently. Discipline, it, discipline is not done in accordance with the act that took place. In other words, God is not trying to bring something upon you that he believes is equivalent to what you've done wrong. What he does in discipline is he's trying to bump you back to the path. And if you've noticed, I think you probably have, if you've noticed when it comes to discipline, God will gently... Try to bump you back on path, and if that doesn't work, he'll bump you a little harder, right? And then if necessary, he'll bump you a little harder, whatever it takes, but he's gentle in the way he disciplines us. James uh, 3.13, who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior, his deeds, and the humble gentleness of wisdom. The gentleness, humble gentleness of wisdom. How about that? Gentleness of wisdom. Keep that in mind. 1 Peter 3.15, set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being prepared in regard to an answer for anyone who asks you for an explanation concerning the confident expectation, that's hope, the confident expectation that is in you, yet with gentleness and respect. Gentleness. So you see, in each one of these, that quality is highlighted as something pretty important. Gentleness. Very important quality that's a fruit of the Spirit. Self-control. Now, I will say right now that many people, unfortunately, many believers, they try to function in the Christian life with a self-control that is actually, instead of fruit of the Spirit, it's a gritting of the teeth. Right? They grit their teeth and they're going to... They're gonna, I'm going to have self-control, you know, and they're trying to do it in the energy of the flesh. That's how they're trying to accomplish it. That's not the right way to do it. And I say this all the time. Remember, the sin nature is in the flesh. If you're trying to use the flesh to defeat the flesh, do you expect that to be successful? I don't. You need to use the fruit of the Spirit. He gives us self-control. Acts 24, 24, and 25 
But some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewish, Jewess, excuse me, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. But as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened and said, go away for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you. I think that he was being convicted. Quite frankly, I think he was being convicted by what he was hearing. Uh, but notice, what was Paul discussing? He was talking about faith in Christ Jesus. He was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Self-control was part of the conversation. Very important part of the Christian walk. Second Peter 1, 5 through 7. Now, for this very reason, also having applied all diligence. We just read through this, right? We went through this. And this is the list in Second Peter 1. And what did it have right in the middle of it? In your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, patient endurance. By the way, it's not, yeah, the patient endurance, the perseverance, that's the idea. But notice that it's important, it's important that those two are coupled together, isn't it? Self-control, because as we face whatever it is in the strength of God, we will have self-control. But often it will require, require excuse me, patient endurance, because a lot of times whatever it is we're facing doesn't go away right away. But self-control has to be a lasting self-control, patient endurance. And so self-control, self-control. Paul talked about it with regard to his own, his own issues, but his own struggles. Now, interestingly, we only have things like these applied to the first list, which is the list of the products of the flesh. But I believe the way the construction is done there, I believe it's implicit in the list that has the fruit of the Spirit, that it's things like these also. Neither of these lists is exhaustive. Things like these really applies to both. He gives a list of things that are the fruit of the Spirit, but there are other things that the Spirit bears forth in us, right, that He produces within us. This is an important list, don't get me wrong, but I believe you can give application to the same exact phrase, things like these, in the fruit of the Spirit passage as well. Now, positionally, this is these last few points here. Positionally, we have been crucified with Christ. Our flesh has been crucified and the world has been crucified. You notice notice these are all Galatians verses. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And by the way, this is, this is that, an important, important verse, not only because I believe this idea, he says, the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. That's not, not strictly talking about initial faith. It's talking about ongoing faith, ongoing faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So the, we have been crucified. Galatians 5.24, our flesh has been crucified. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and lusts. And then finally in Galatians 6:14, but may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Of course we haven't gotten there yet in our Galatians study, but we will, Lord willing, rapture pending. But there's the idea positionally all of these things are true. That positional reality by the way should motivate us to behave accordingly. If we've been crucified, if our flesh has been crucified, if the world has been crucified, if that's the positional reality, don't you think we should behave according to that? Seems to me, uh, Romans 6, 5, and 6, 
For since we have become identified with the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be identified with the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified together with him in order that our body of sin might be rendered powerless so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Right? No longer be slaves to sin. Now, if you you remember when we went through Romans, he talks a lot about how, you know what, you can still give into it if you want, but you're going to be a slave of whatever you decide to serve. If you decide to serve the, serve the flesh, to serve sin, you're going to be a slave to sin. But the fact of the matter is we've been given that freedom where we would no longer be slaves to sin. We should live in the reality of knowing I'm not a slave to sin anymore. I was as an unbeliever, but I'm not anymore. Verses 11 through 14 of that same chapter and as follows, consider yourselves, this is important, a thinking word, consider yourselves, think about it, come to the conclusion as you think about it. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let, this is an imperative here, do not let sin reign in your mortal body to the end that you obey its lusts, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as weapons of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who are alive from the dead and the members of your body to God as weapons of righteousness. So this is a volitional choice you have, a volitional choice that you have is whether you're going to, who are you going to present yourself to? To the members of your body? I mean, not, excuse me, are you going to present the members of your body to sin as weapons of unrighteousness? Or are you going to present the members of your body, yourselves, it says in the second half, present yourselves to God as those who are alive from the dead and the members of your body to God as weapons of righteousness? So what do you, how are you going to present yourself? Are you going to present yourself to sin or are you going to present yourself to God? Which one are you going to do? That's the choice you have. And so when we see it in the form of an imperative like it is in verse 12 and verse 13, the language of this, that's why verse 11 has the thinking aspect to it. Think about this and then make the volitional choice to follow the imperatives here. Don't do this. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body that you obey its lust. Don't present yourself, the members of your body, to sin. Present yourself to God. And so we have that volitional choice. We have that volitional choice. Which one are you going to do? Spiritual maturity, this is the final thought here on this. Spiritual maturity should never be a basis for boasting. That's what we had in the very last verse. Remember? Very last verse talked about it. Let's don't be arrogant. Let's don't be arrogant. Let's don't be contentious. Very last verse of this. So spiritual maturity should never be a basis for boasting. I highlighted this on purpose here. Not only is it this verse in this passage... This is a real problem that I see in some doctrinal churches. People mature in the faith. They're maturing in the faith. By the way, do you ever, do you ever reach maturity? Is there a point where you can say, I'm there. I have arrived. I don't think so. And the beauty of it is I don't think we're going to ever see that. I think we're going to be there for all, all eternity, continuing to grow for eternity. I believe that's the picture that we have. So, but I see people that are very strong in the faith. They've grown in the faith, but they become arrogant about it. I call it, and it's not my term, by the way. Pastor Bob Bolander at Austin Bible Church is the one who coined this. Doctrinal arrogance. People who become really well uh, versed in the things of the Word of God. They understand the Word of God very well, but they become arrogant about it. Spiritual maturity should never be a basis for boasting. 1 Corinthians 1 30 and 31, but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. So God did it, right? By his doing, you're in Christ Jesus, 
who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. In other words, what Paul is saying here, what you have, he's saying everything you have came from God anyway, right? So what are you boasting about? Why are you boasting? If you're going to boast, boast in the Lord. 2 Corinthians 10, 17 and 18, But he who boasts is to boast in the Lord, for it is not he who commends himself that is approved, but he whom the Lord commends. In other words, you're doing a fine job of commending yourself, but that's not going to cut it. That's not what matters. What matters is he whom the Lord commends. And finally, Philippians 2, 1 through 4. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation offered by love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection or compa- and compassion, make my joy complete by being like-minded, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, focused on one goal. And I scroll up here, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or inflated self-worth, but with humility of mind, think of one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely give consideration to your own personal interests, but also to the interest of others. In other words, don't allow yourself to become inflated in terms of your ego. Don't allow your spiritual walk, though it may be wonderful. I mean, I'm not denying the fact that there may be a wonderful spiritual walk taking place, but if you become arrogant about it, you've stumbled over the stumbling stone and you've fallen into a point where now you're actually a hindrance to others not helping others the reality of it is all that we have been given everything this is what you need to remember all that we have been given by god whether it's spiritual giftedness whether it's the wisdom whether it's the uh all the things listed in the fruit of the spirit love joy peace patience kindness goodness faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all of these things that we find, what, why have we been given those things? So that we can use it for others. That's what God is doing. So we can use it for others. He's giving us these qualities so that we can make application and serve others with those qualities, with these things. Now, by the way, I didn't put the verse in here in this list, but can you all think of the one verse? You know, What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, Why do you act as if you did not receive it? That verse applies right here as well. In other words, yeah, okay. You know what? You can can quote the entire book of Ephesians. That's awesome. That is incredible. That's awesome that you can do that. But how did you do that? God enabled you to do that. First of all, you wouldn't even have been able to do that if God hadn't given you the word anyway, right? He gave you Ephesians. And he gave you the ability to memorize Ephesians. So when you start analyzing it, you should realize, yes, where I am in my spiritual walk, it's by the grace of God. And he gets the credit and he gets the glory. I don't want any of it. That should be your mental attitude. But I do see people who become arrogant in their Christian walk, and it's a stumbling block. If we go back to our translation that we had in Galatians What was the last verse? Let us not become arrogant, provoking one another, envying one another. Let's not become arrogant in our spiritual walk. Let's not do that. It's a dangerous thing that can happen. It's great that you're growing in the faith. One of the things that brings me joy, happiness, however you want to categorize it, one of the things that really is a delight for me as as your pastor is when I can see 
the word of God transforming you. And I can see the effectiveness of the word in your lives and there's a change in you and I can see your growth, spiritual growth, and it's awesome and wonderful to watch. That's awesome. But as I've said multiple times just now, God gets the glory. Not only does he get the glory in your life, he gets the glory from my standpoint too, right? I take zero credit for everything that God is accomplishing in this local church. God gets all the credit. He's the one who's accomplishing it. I am merely a fellow worker of God, and he has invited me to be his fellow worker. And if I fail to be his fellow worker, he could teach you all these things without me, right? So I get zero credit. He gets all the credit and all the glory, and that's how it's supposed to be. All right, next time, which won't be until next Sunday because I will be at the conference this week, uh, next Sunday, Lord willing, we will begin to take a look at chapter 6. And I appreciate y'all's patience with regard to the time that we've taken to go through these verses at the end of chapter 5 because, in my opinion, this is a very, very important part of the text. It's, this passage really teaches us a lot about how to walk in a manner worthy, how we are supposed to function as believers on a day-to-day basis in the dispensation of the church. This is, this is instruction that's been given to us, and it tells us a lot. So I'm looking forward to getting into chapter 6 because it builds on what we just learned in chapter 5. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for all that you teach us from your precious word. We thank you for preserving your word for us so that we would have it as a, as a plumb line, as a measuring stick for our lives. We thank you for the fact that you gave us so many tools, so many provisions that help us to walk the way we're supposed to walk. You didn't just throw us out there with nothing. You've given us so many tools to, to have a victorious Christian walk. And we thank you for all of these things. We know that you do hold us to a high standard. We understand that. But at the same time, you've also made available to us so many things to live up to that standard. We thank you for the spirit who indwells us that can lead us through this life to remind us of your word, to help us to understand the truth of spiritual things. Father, we thank you for just so many things that you've given to us. Personally, I want to thank you for this group of believers that you've gathered at this local church. What a blessing it is to be part of this fellowship. We thank you for all these provisions. In Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name we pray. Amen.